0: is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello to you. Great to have you listening on your digital radio, the ABC Listen app, or even listening back on the podcast. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. You'll head over to the northwest today to check in on the Great Northern Highway and the future of the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge. The WA State Government has taken a look at the bridge and announced some big plans for that freight route. It won't be a quick fix, at least two years in fact, but there is a plan for the meantime. What it'll look like is ferrying initially people across and then...
1: Um, equipment, uh, freight and and other, other assets. But we're trying to do that as quickly as possible to get some better connectivity from both sides.
0: A barge, pontoons, tugs, hopefully getting you and your freight over the Fitzroy in just a matter of weeks. You'll get the detail on that before one. Also this afternoon, are you an ice cream fan? On a hot, sweaty, wet season afternoon, what is the strangest flavour you've ever tried? I was told to try durian ice cream. Haven't been able to face it just yet. But what about avocado? I've just been exploring different
2: ways to utilise waste avocados pretty much from my own farm production. Avocados using a few other produce that's grown on my farm, such as passion fruit or
0: hazelnuts. And I'm like, hey, there's actually there actually could be something with this. You know, I reckon I'd probably give it a whirl. You'll get a taste of that avocado ice cream before one thirty. if you'd like to get in touch. 0487 99 1057. First up this afternoon, did you know that buffalo dairies from every state in Australia have sourced their animals from here in the Territory? The Department of Industry's Beatrice Hill Research Station was the first to import riverine buffalo genetics from Italy and they're still in high demand. About 40 riverine cows are about to be sent sent to a dairy near Perth. So Dan Fitzgerald went out to Beatrice Hill to check out the buffalo before they left and hear about the department's buffalo research.
3: Hi, I'm Bob McDonald from Beatrice Hill Research Farm up in Darwin. Uh, Here we're looking at uh, riverine buffalo weaners from the age of 8 months through to 12 months. 50 of them are from AI straws from Italy and the others are all just home bred from our own own breed. Uh, The female buffaloes here will all be going into the breeding. Uh, The males, what aren't from the AI straws, will be going to Vietnam, Indonesia, Brunei or anywhere like that. So that's what we do with them here.
4: And how are they looking at the moment? Looking magical.
3: Beautiful and quiet as you can see. Come up to you and want a pat.
4: <laughs> do you do much handling to keep them quiet?
3: Uh, we leave them in the yards for about two weeks. Uh, running through the race every day, once or twice. Uh, they love the water, the hose. They'll do anything for a water.
4: And they'd love the wet season, I would
3: imagine. Oh, they'd love it as you can see. They're in the mud holes now, just wallowing and enjoying life.
4: Uh, how big is the, um, the herd here at Beatrice Hill at the moment?
3: At the moment we've got 40-odd wieners here. Uh, another 10 AI wieners. Uh, so there's 50 and we've got about 60 breeding cows left. Uh, plus we've got 40 cows ready to go to Perth for the dairy and 11 weeders to go to Perth. We're just waiting on trucking and the government over at Perth to let them get cleared and we're we'll all go.
4: Uh, how much demand is there from buffalo dairies around Australia for these, for these buffalo?
3: Oh, at the moment Perth was very interested so we're sending, like I said, 50 over there to them. And then uh, Victoria are very interested in a few more bulls and some more heifers. So it's looking up for the breeding thing, so all goes well.
4: And Beatrice seal, it seems to be uh, the place where all buffalo dairy, dairies around Australia get their start.
3: Uh, virtually is. We're the first uh, place to introduce uh, AI straws from Italy and the first people to bring four buffaloes over from America. So, yeah, we've had the buffaloes here for 28 years, I think it is now, so, yeah.
4: Now, we've also got uh, Tim Schotts here the Principal Livestock Research Officer with the department. Um, Tim, where where is the department's buffalo research at at the moment?
5: Okay, so we've scaled it back um, in, over the last few years. So um, Barry Lemke, that worked for us for many, many years, so about 40, um, basically did a lot of his career on buffalo research and has written it all up, and, and that's a fantastic record of, of a lot of research on buffaloes. And um, but look, the the industry of domesticated buffaloes in the NT hasn't really taken off, and so um, we've had to focus um, efforts elsewhere. And so we've scaled the herd back down to now we're, we're at about a hundred uh, breeders, um, where it was a lot more than that in previous years. but um, so we're just keeping it going, um, but there's not a, not an active research program going at the moment with the buffalo.
4: Why do you think the, the sort of behind the wire buffalo uh, industry hasn't really taken off in the top end.
5: Yeah, it's it's hard to know. I mean, they pushed so that there was a product called tender Bu- tender buff, um, which was was the meat that they tried to get more acceptance of in the shops, and it just it just never really took off in the mainstream. There's always been that sort of novelty buff burger um, that sells a bit to tourists, but not the volumes that um, they, that you know they had originally hoped would see, where people bought it like they bought beef. Uh, it's a bit of a darker colour and, and it just, I don't know, it's just um, market demand was never there in any great volume. And so I guess they over time they th- sort of thought, well, the market is speaking and, and, and it's not sending strong, strong signals. So they, they didn't uh, continue with that.
4: Yeah, and that market demand, uh, the price for, for cattle has really shot up in comparison to Buffalo. So I guess that price disparity... It just makes it more difficult for producers to chew buffalo, hey? Well, that's it. You know, if you've got
5: a set amount of land and you're tossing up whether you run buffalo or cattle, well, you can make a lot more money out of cattle these days. So, um, you know, the money talks, and, and that's um, driving
4: where it's headed. So what's the future for, for buffalo here at Beatrice Hill?
5: Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll still keep this herd um, so that if there is sort of more interest we, that we've got that base to work from and we can breed up from it, and you know the department still does uh, support the buffalo industry and um, that's both the uh, wild harvest and domesticated Um, but at the at the moment I guess with the domesticated stuff with these riverine buffalo it's just in a bit of a holding pattern.
4: And it sounds like they're still making a little bit of money selling to, to dairies around Australia.
5: Yeah. So as Bob said, like um, pretty much all the dairies in Australia, the animals that they have originally came through um, Beatrice Hill Farm, one way or the other. Um, whether they, you know they bred them from the animals um, that came from here originally, or purchased them directly, and and there is still quite a good demand for heifers to go into Buffalo Dairy. So we we still sell them from time to time. Uh, for that, and and they pay reasonably good money for the, for that, but um, then we've we've still got all the males that we've um, got to sell, uh, export, and uh, we're getting a lot less f- uh, for them as we would get for cattle.
4: And these ones here, they're looking pretty happy out in the paddock.
5: They are, aren't they? They um they really look a picture, very contented, chewing their cuds and wallowing around in the mud, and uh, just this environment is 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 natural for them, and and they're very happy.
0: Tim Schultz is a Principal Livestock Research Officer with the Department of Industry, ending that story by Dan Fitzgerald. 22 to 1 on the Country Hour, coming up before 1 o'clock, talking seaweed, carbon and livestock. And you'll hear about those plans for the Great Northern Highway to reopen that freight route back up and running to the south of WA. But on the text line 0487991057, I asked you a little bit earlier about strange ice cream flavours because before one you you'll get a taste of some avocado ice cream. Marg has been in touch to say that she greased you in, is strange and not great. Uh, but Marg used to buy sweet corn ice cream over 30 years ago in Malaysia and it was yummy not sure if it's still a flavor there mark says sweet corn ice cream can you top it have you had a strange or interesting ice cream ice cream flavor 0487991057 in the name of waste reduction all sorts of things go into food these days you'll hear more about it in the next hour let's have some music first from Morgan Evans it's called Childhood Heart. Australia's Morgan Evans and Childhood Heart.
4: Yeah, my name's Nick Verica from Road Trains of Australia, and I've just unloaded here at the Barrymore Export Yard. And when I'm cruising along, I always tune into the Country Hour.
0: 16 to 1 on the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you. Global Asparagopsis Production Company, CH4 has struck a deal with a large feedlot in southern New South Wales to provide them with seaweed to help reduce their methane emissions. Ravensworth have 40,000 head of cattle and CH4 have production facilities in South Australia and offices in the US, New Zealand and Australia. Adam Main is the Australian general manager and he told David Clawton about this deal with Ravensworth.
6: It's a long-term agreement to begin that partnership. Um, we'll scale up with them uh, as the supply of seaweed grows. So um, they have quite a number of head that we will in a very short time frame, be looking to make all um, methane impact or uh, methane um, reduced or reduction in. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the partnership begins in 2023 and we grow from there.
7: And where are you growing the asparagopsis?
6: So at the moment, we're growing asparagopsis in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, we have the ability to utilise uh, material generated from both. Um, so we've gone through all the necessary uh, process to uh, be able to use local material from Australia, but also import high grade material as well from New Zealand to uh, to meet uh, the offtake agreements like with uh, Ravensworth.
7: So are you farming the ocean or have you got sort of aquaculture projects running?
6: Yeah, no, it's, it's pure aquaculture. We grow everything that we sell. So it's not a seaweed harvesting company. We're an aquaculture company. So the way that we um, grow the seaweed is both at sea and on land. Um, both of those technologies are, are still developing, and um, we see that there's uh, room to gain in uh, both uh, farming in the, uh, the marine space out in the ocean, but also definitely in the land space uh, where we do that in tanks and ponds on land. So as a company... We've taken on quite an aggressive approach to scaling up this technology and we're investing in in both options.
7: How do you get it from your production site to the feedlot as as far as Ravensworth goes, for example?
6: Yeah, so the seaweed is a natural product from from the beginning right through to the end. Um, There's not much that we have to do to the seaweed once we harvest it from either the marine or the land. We have to dry it, and you've got to dry it in a certain way, and that's something we've been doing uh, work on for the last couple of years. Once dried, we formulate it quite simply into a a finished product. That finished product goes into uh, bags that goes and gets shipped off to Ravensworth. So, as much as we've spent the last couple of years looking at how to scale up the technology, we've also been looking and working with partners like Ravensworth – in regards to how is it going to be used at the by the end user, by at the feedlot end. So we haven't gone down the path of making a technology that requires the feedlotter or the farmer to change their business practices by any means. So that's been just as important as learning as much about the seaweed as we can, but also how we're actually going to get that into the trough for the cows to eat uh, a dose of it every day.
7: And so how much will you need? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is just dried seaweed in bags that can be mixed with the other food, yeah?
6: Yep. So basically, a feedlot farmer um, runs a really tight process in regards to sourcing high-quality materials. It's a mixed blend of all sorts of wonderful things that the cows like eating. And a cow, a normal cow, in any given day would eat somewhere between 12 and 14 kilos of feed. Uh, all we need to add to that uh, mix is 50 grams, 50 grams of seaweed to a 14 kilo uh, feed for a cow a day is enough to turn the methane off uh, to, a, to, the, to a level around 90% reduction in methane.
7: So what percentage of, of cattle in feedlots now would be getting asparagopsis or some kind of uh, feed to reduce emissions, do you reckon?
6: Oh, low, low now. percent yep, or something? Oh, yeah, no. yeah. very low in 2022. In 2023, we're absolutely starting to get into counting percentages. So without sort of, you know, overstepping, we're, we're aggressively looking at having 20,000 head um, at some point in 2023. Um, but that is then scaled up. It doesn't go up by the tens or the hundreds. It goes up by the thousands as the industry scales up. And it's people like Ravensworth, the early movers, that will get the advantages and um I think that Ravensworth as a mature feedlotting company are seeing that opportunity both in the domestic and the international market for the export market. So it's um it's a pleasure to work with those companies that are that are keen to explore this technology right at the get go.
0: Adam Main from Global Asparagopsis Production Company CH4 speaking with David Claughton about the company's deal with Ravensworth. On the topic of seaweed and carbon, can seaweeds remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it long enough to earn carbon credits? A team of researchers at the University of Tasmania is trying to find out after an independent review of the federal government's carbon credit scheme called for more transparency around the issue. Professor Katrina Hurd spoke to Fiona Breen about how she's trying to work out the carbon impact of seaweed.
8: In order to demonstrate that seaweeds can sequester carbon, you have to be able to measure the amount of Carbon dioxide that is removed from the atmosphere, and then how much of it is stored long term. So, the long term storage we say is over 100 years, and that has to be in an, a form that is unreactive. And then it won't return to the atmosphere.
9: Have you developed a way to actually measure the, the or you're looking at a framework? No, we have, we have a, a framework
8: a which has, probably has about 20 different components that need to be measured in order to demonstrate that seaweeds would are sequestering carbon and to be able to start to put numbers on that. So there's no numbers on these different parts of the framework yet, they're, they're just there. And so some things we know quite well. For example, we know the rates of seaweed photosynthesis we know how much seaweed is in a seaweed bed we know how much carbon is in that so we have numbers around that things we don't have numbers around are how much of that seaweed carbon ends up in sediments or ends up locked away in a form that is a long-term 100 year storage what we do in the framework is we start off by comparing seaweeds to trees so in on ter- in terrestrial environments we know that trees take up carbon dioxide they store it as wood which can be stored for long term, maybe a hundred years or more, and also it's stored as soil. So soil is the biggest, by far the biggest carbon store we've got on the planet earth. Seaweeds we also call forests, and people think that perhaps they might sequester carbon in the same way that trees do. But seaweeds are really different because they have a very fast turnover time. So they, their lifespan is, only a, is like maximum 10 years. In most cases, it's only one to two years. So they're not really storing carbon like trees on a long-term basis. Because
9: trees really in this new era are quite valuable in terms of carbon credit schemes, etc. They're earning money.
8: Yes, yeah, you know? so, yeah, so trees do sequester carbon because, and they store it as living biomass. If, For example, if they live to be 100 years or more, some trees are 1,000 years old. But, and they particularly store it as soil. So that we know that trees can be used for carbon credits and we know, and it's relatively easy to quantify.
9: Well, I know that uh, various agriculture farms are sort of trialling growing seaweeds, uh, perhaps to offset some things in, in their industry, but also as carbon sequestration.
8: Is that happening around the place? There's a lot of work, there's a lot of interest in doing that. However, Because they've got very short lifespans, that carbon isn't tied up for very long. And if it's an aquaculture, it's only tied up for a few months before they're harvested. So in aquaculture situations, it's very difficult to demonstrate that that carbon... It's got to be locked up for a long time. So there may be applications. So for example, you could use seaweed, for example, to replace oil for plastics and in that way you're sort of using seaweeds and not using oil so that is some form of sequestration but to be it's probably quite small uh very small actually compared to what we need to do to remove it from the atmosphere so do you think that maybe seaweed even though you're looking at this
9: framework might not be as uh, good as forests for example Uh,
8: from my knowledge at the moment i they're probably not as good as forests and at sequestering carbon just because of the very fast life cycles however What we have to be able to do is to track where the seaweed's going to. So when it gets ripped off the rocks, where does it end up? Some of it ends up back in the terrestrial environment, it gets washed up on the shore. Some of it may end up in the deep ocean, in the sediments, and that's what people are trying to quantify now to see if that is a possible storage for for seaweeds. But we are some ways away from being able to understand this correctly and is part of this sort of framework that you're developing
9: is that about making it transparent and accountable and sort of ticking boxes
8: so we know that you know if a claim is made it is actually true well absolutely so if we want to allocate carbon credits to anything it's got to be verifiable and we've got to have integrity around the numbers and to do this is actually a lot of work because it isn't just measuring you know how much seaweed's there you've got to find out where it goes and how much is that seaweed growth resulting in the drawdown of atmospheric carbon dioxide into seawater and is that then going to be locked up for more than 100 years and you have to be able to know all these numbers to be able to, to put a number on a credit and at the moment we don't have those numbers. Because credits are valuable you can actually earn money from yeah, the th- government. Absolutely you can earn money for that and whether or not a seaweed bed is you know we know it's a short-term carbon store it, they've been there for many thousands of years so they're doing a very good job at cycling carbon in the coastal ocean already um, whether that's a carbon credit is a different question.
0: Professor Katrina Heard from the University of Tasmania speaking to Fiona Breen, 6 to 1. The road connection between Western Australia's East and West Kimberley could be back up and running in a matter of weeks. The WA Transport Minister has announced plans to rebuild the Fitzroy Bridge, higher and make it two lanes – That is going to take some time, about two years potentially. So in the meantime, the plan is to implement a barge system across the river with tugs and portable pontoons when the river falls too low and at the same time to construct a low-level floodway crossing. Rita Safiotti is the Transport Minister. She spoke with Andrew Collins about the mammoth task to rebuild the Fitzroy Bridge.
1: So we're fast-tracking the procurement um, and we hope to have a successful... So someone nominated to be the successful builder within about three or four weeks. Um, We'll then go into design and then construction. So um, I think what has been discussed is up to two years. That's still um, the time frame but we're going to do whatever we can to get it delivered quicker. Um, So we'll be looking at construction techniques, steel versus concrete, a number of different things and seeing how quickly we can get it up.
7: The implementation of the barge system uh, across the river. Uh, When will that be operational? And in the early days, what will it look like?
1: Yeah, so it's a proposal that's been put forward that we've accepted. Um, So it's a West Australian company, an alliance of people who have been involved in these types of projects or in in particular the oil and gas sector, logistics in oil and gas. So um, the contract was signed uh, last week, last Friday, and so they're mobilising some equipment now and we're trying to get that up as soon as possible within the next two to three weeks. Um, What it'll look like is uh, all those that have been sort of like on, on a barge system, basically ferrying initially people across and then um, equipment, uh, freight and, and other, other assets. So we'll, once um, we start getting a better understanding of exactly the time frame, we'll be then looking at how we prioritise our movements, but really currently it's just getting getting the system in place and that will take a lot of work. We're going to have to get the barges there and we've got to do some work on the embankments of either side. We met with traditional owners today and the community leaders um, in Fitzroy to start that discussion and, and a couple of key points will be where exactly will it be and um, also the work that will be needed, needed to have on either side but we're trying to do that as quickly as possible to get some better connectivity from both sides.
7: So when is it possible that that barge system could take vehicles over?
1: um optimistically i'd say the next three three to four weeks is optimistically is what, well look time frames are very difficult at this point in time in particular because we're trying to deliver this through the wet season so we'll be very much dependent on uh, the weather conditions and when we can be out there doing significant work
7: and how big a vehicle uh, could it take is there the prospect that the barge system uh, could take over road train trailers or is that out of the question
1: Uh, Initially it will be just the single trailers, um, but again it will really depend on so many different factors, but initially really the weather conditions, the depth of the river at any given time. We're getting the barge system as well as uh, finalising or trying to finalise the route for the temporary temporary, um, uh, road as well. Because we need, well, I think we believe we need both of these things to be in operation for both the next dry and wet season. And then we'll look at the capacity and how it's operating, and then how we prioritise. But of course, um, the needs of local residents it will be the number one priority, and also freight movements to make sure we can ensure um, communities can have access um, to to food and produce. So, but like I said, all those issues will be worked out, and we'll work them out once
0: we have a better picture and understanding of exactly how it will operate. WA's Transport Minister, Rita Safiotti. The industry is hopeful this interim barge system will help get freight through the Kimberley. Cam Dumsey is from the Western Roads Federation. He still has some questions.
10: You know, we're still getting clarity on, on it. Our understanding, it was, it was pretty much to cover light vehicles up to light trucks. Uh, we just need the clarity whether or not I can take over a trailer uh, at a time. Um, so we may need to break down the the, uh, the triple road trains and then reassemble them on the other side one at a time, but those points of clarity will we'll work with through with the department and the minister's office over the next you know period of time because it's a month before the Wailea section will reopen according to the same media release. Okay,
7: so you hold out hope that the barge system uh, will be strong enough to to take a a road train trailer at a time.
10: Well, we'd hope so. Um, but, you know, it's obviously got to break it down. But then really look at the volume of traffic because their DPS are going to get involved as well. So obviously the local community's be able, got to be able to get its cars over from one side of the river to the other to, you know, go about their normal life. Then there's going to be a lot of flood uh, support and recovery activity. So that'll be going on simultaneously. And then we've obviously got to get the trucks across. So whether or not it's got the capacity to do that, uh, we'll work through those details. But in the interim, we'll still be running up through the centre of Australia.
0: Cam Dumasie, he's the CEO of the Western Roads Federation, speaking with Andrew Collins. So potentially a solution to get the Great Northern Highway up and running in a month or so, but a total rebuild of the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge still a few years away. Let's head to the news now. It's one o'clock.
3: Yeah, day. it's Greg Owens here. Uh, recently retired from NT Farmers but still hoping to be a big part of our farming community in the north and you're listening to the NT Country Hour.
0: Hello, hello. Michelle Stanley with you on the Country Hour. It's five past one. Not sure about you, but when it's hot outside what is better than a delicious ice cream to cool you down? There are some pretty strange flavours around these days. Durian for one and Marg earlier mentioned sweet corn ice cream. I wonder whether you would ever give avocado ice cream a crack. I've just been exploring different ways to utilise waste avocados
2: pretty much from my own farm production. Avocados using a few other produce that's grown on my farm, such as passion fruit or hazelnuts. And I'm like, hey, there's actually, there actually could be something with this.
0: I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty good to me. All in the name of waste reduction, I'll eat more ice cream. You'll hear about that more pro- that project a little more later this half hour. Let's head to the Weather Bureau first, though. Sally Cutter is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology. Sally, an awful lot of rain around yesterday afternoon in Darwin, and I believe some uh, flights
11: were impacted as well. What did we have yeah, there's some pretty good falls. A line came in. Unfortunately, it's when a couple of the flights were trying to land, but the Darwin Hospital ended up with 49 millimetres, and it was actually right along the north coast that we've seen good, better rainfall totals. Milling had 45 millimetres. Nightcliff Pool had 40 millimetres. Maningrida had 39. Now Willie really 38. Gove 37. Walker Creek, which is in the Finnish River catchment, had 37. Kayana had 36, and Leanne had 36 as well. So there's been pretty good falls. Sorak 7, 329, Greet Island 33, Cape Russell 29. So right across the north, there's been some pretty good rainfall.
0: And what's to come over the next few days?
11: Well, we've got a weak low that's about 275 kilometres northwest of Darwin, so, and moving away. It's moving away quite quickly, and that. That location was about nine o'clock this morning. So it's moving pretty fast at the moment and it's going to head off, continue heading off through the Timor Sea. And as that moves away, we'll see the showers and storms over the top end ease. They're not going to be totally clear, but they, we will see them easing. But then as you further south, we're going to see some fairly hot conditions sort of south of the, probably around about Elliott, extending south. But then we've got the cloud band developing sort of. Thursday, Friday, Saturday's probably going to be the when the rainfall really picks up across the, the Tanami, Lester areas, just as the, the trough comes through, taps into the moisture from this low and, and just brings those showers and storms back to the southwestern parts of the NT. And then as we go through the weekend, of course, extending eastwards and then starting to contract north on Monday.
0: So the Tanami are going to get even more rain after, I mean, the road has been closed since before Christmas. How much rain could fall out there?
11: Oh, the, we, we are going to see some rain. It's probably going to be more showers and storms. So it's really going to depend on whether you're underneath one of the storms when it happens. But so Friday so through the Tanami, we could be looking at, say, so 10, 15 millimetres. The, on Saturday, down into the last third, so something similar, of so maybe 15, 20 millimetres under the storm. So it's not going to be those really big rainfalls that we have seen, but we could see some, some reasonable totals, of may, maybe some isolated falls, so heavier than that, so up to, up to 40 millimetres. So but they are going to be showers and storms, so it's not going to be that widespread rain
0: okay. that we have seen. All right and and I guess we'll have to keep an eye on the the bureau's website for any kind of flood warnings and watches given the the country's pretty wet and full already.
11: Yeah, certainly we're keeping a close eye on it. We we're keeping an eye on for storms in the north today as well. There's, forming up into lines and moving along those lines across the top end so we could you could get some good totals just because you've got one storm continuously after the others we call it the train effect so because it's like the storms the carriages on a railway line and they're just continuously going over the one spot dumping the rain there so that's probably the the main risk in the north it's whether that we see them heavy enough to cause flooding issues that's so it's not we're not may not quite be there, but we're keeping certainly keeping an eye on on that, and then focus does move south later in the week, and we are so we're keeping an eye on it all the time, so just probably the the best thing to do is to, to listen out for warnings you can on the app set to get a notification if a warning's put out for your area you have you have to choose a location you don't you can't it doesn't work out where you are, but you set a location and then it will send you an alert if the warning covers that your the, your chosen point.
0: Now you you mentioned that later in the week the south will get a little bit wet, but it's going to be hot over the next few days in in central yeah. Australia.
11: Yeah, unfortunately, with the clear skies down there at the moment, the, it's going to be pretty hot. So Tennant Creek's not going to be quite so bad. Look, looking at thirty nine today, thirty six tomorrow, because they they're going to get a bit more cloud down there. They're far enough north to see some of that cloud, but once you get down to Alice Springs, 39 today, 41 for the next two days, so Wednesday and Thursday, 39 for Friday. And it's not until really the rain really picks up or chance of rain really picks up on Saturday that we're looking at, the maximum dropping down to 33. And out at Ulara, we're looking at 39 today, 41 tomorrow, 40 for Thursday. Clouds starting to pick up on Friday, which is sort of going to moderate those temperatures down to 37 and then dropping down to 33s and 31s for the weekend. Much when more comfortable. To the, the cloud, yeah, but it's going to be humid. That's that's the other thing. It's not going to be your typical desert dry. We're still looking at rain, so it's going to be a bit humid.
0: Where's the good news, Sally? (laughs) If you want rain, it's good news. Yes, that's right. That is true. Uh, And a question without notice. I mentioned at the top of the hour uh, around some sort of strange or different ice cream flavours. Do you have any that come to mind that you've enjoyed or maybe not enjoyed but tried?
11: Oh, I've had a tea-flavoured one, but tea's not my favourite choice of drink, so it's... Well, some of the teas are, but not not this particular one. No, I haven't... I think I'll probably try more... It's a weird one... not your standard supermarket ones when if you're getting it at a a store that actually just sells ice creams.
0: Yeah, there's all sorts of different flavours, aren't there? We'll talk about avocado ice cream a little bit later in the day, but thank you very much, Sally, for that uh, comprehensive wrap of the weather. Sally Cutter from the Bureau of Meteorology. It's 12 past one.
7: Hi, it's James Finlay. I can't wait to bring you a brand new show this year. This show will be full of fun, fascinating stories, intriguing discoveries and it'll have one very special component. You! Afternoons in 2023 are going to be great. So I'll see you from the 30th of January from 1.30 for Afternoons on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
0: A regional New South Wales company is converting diesel prime movers to electric and trialling seven trucks involved in agriculture, mining and food distribution. Janus Electric on the central coast has orders for 130 conversions from companies all over Australia and says the economics stack up. CEO Lex Forsyth told David Clawton the running costs are less than a quarter of a conventional diesel truck.
12: We're taking up to 10-year-old prime movers and converting them from uh, diesel to electric. Um, So we're taking uh, Kenworths, Max, uh, Western Stars, Freightliners, Uh, volvos and and converting them from a diesel prime mover to uh, electric and then putting on our exchangeable battery technology so that's starting to heat up a bit yeah yeah look we've got a lot of interest um i think a lot of fleet operators are wanting to embrace the technology and move forward because there's big operational savings in in going to electric and and get away getting away from high volatile diesel prices we have got a couple of regional carriers around um, mount Gambier and port Augusta that are looking at it um, and some agricultural carriers that are starting to look at it from um, fixed um, operations. So typically running to feedlots or running uh, from grain board to to port, depending on the distance that they're they're looking at covering. We've converted seven trucks so far. We've got orders there for about another 130. Uh, One will be carting milk. The other is carting sand and gravel and the other one is doing cement. And then we've got one going into a logging application, and then one going into a mining application, uh, hauling copper concentrate uh, for a project that we're doing with Oz Minerals and Cube called Vision Electric. Um, and then we've got some uh, some going to Melbourne, uh, going into fridge vans for one of our partners down there, New Cold, that will be um, uh, carrying uh, different frozen goods um, from del- uh, delivery um, from producers to uh, DC, and then DC into a um, into uh, the supermarket DCs.
7: I mean, one of the constraints that farmers often talk about is, um, you know, the lack of charging points around the countryside. Is that something that can be solved?
12: Yeah, look, we, we build our own charge stations as well. Um, we, we understand the, the pressures of charging points. And, you know, this this application for electric vehicles, I, I don't believe electric vehicles are going to suit a, a livestock carrier or a, um, a carrier in, in, in far western Queensland or in, in outback Australia because the reality of it is, is there's a tyranny of distance, and when you when you look at the duty cycles of some of those vehicles, they're not utilised completely the way that um, vehicles in the capital cities are and in line haul, prominent line haul routes. Uh, I do think that you know th- there is going to be a need uh, for some diesel prime movers in these rural applications because it, it doesn't make sense to go and put a heap of charging infrastructure in the middle of Australia, or you know you, you're not going to get uh, pastoralist companies putting charging stations in there to recharge livestock trucks. that That's just not going to be practical. Uh, but in applications where you're, you know, for a farmer who has trucks operating on their farm, there's no reason why you couldn't put a solar system in one of our charge stations there on their farm and have any of the trucks that are working within the property running on electric, it would reduce maintenance costs and running costs significantly. Um, and they've got the beauty of being able to have a, a backup power system uh, for their for their properties as well at the same time.
7: Yeah, the battery can can be a multi-purpose type thing. What about range? Yeah. What are you seeing in terms of range for these vehicles?
12: Look, we're we're seeing between four to six hundred kilometres, depending on what the vehicle's towing. Um, obviously, single trailer applications are a little bit higher, but anywhere between that four to six hundred kilometres, and the regenerative braking that's a standard feature. Depending on the topography, you're harvesting that energy back into the battery. So that's that's what we're seeing as a as a as range indications at the moment.
7: And the cost of filling up. Your tank with diesel that's got prohibitively expensive as you mentioned earlier what would it cost to recharge electrically
12: oh i think if you look at if you look at it as a cents per kilometer basis uh typically you're seeing around uh, diesels costing most operators um typically most applications around that a dollar to a dollar 15 a kilometer to operate going to electric you're looking at around that um, 40 to 40 to 60 cents depending on where you're where you're buying your power. So are
7: farmers right then that this is going to be, as you were saying, limited application in the bush? Or do you think long term it, it, it could could eventually be the way of the future, electric vehicles on farms?
12: I, th- I definitely think electric vehicles are the way of the future. What, what we need is advancements in the battery cell chemistry. We're, we're working with one of our, our cell providers who's a partner in uh, of our business. And we've got a new chemistry coming that we should see middle of next year, which is a, a lithium sulphur chemistry. That will double our double our range. So all of a sudden, our batteries will go from doing four to six hundred going to eight to twelve hundred kilometres out of a battery charge. That's the game changer. Um, the The big thing that we see is that you know as battery cell technology develops and we get better better um, energy density out of solid state and these other chemistries that are being developed at the moment. It, it, the reason why we've gone with an exchangeable battery solution is so that the, the, the operator can get that technology as soon as it becomes economically viable and in manufacture, rather than buying a fixed battery asset um, that's fixed to the vehicle. We, we're looking at it and going, well, we've got to be able to move with the technology, and that's where the technology developments are coming, is in battery cell technology.
7: Just one last question, going back on the performance stuff. If I put a, an electric motor in one of my machines... What, how would it perform? Is it is it better or, or worse when it comes to you know heavy heavy moving?
12: Oh, look, I, I think it, we, the feedback that we get is the drivers find it unbelievable to drive because they are the torque and the availability of immediate torque is there. Like we we're going to have some of the highest powered electric trucks in the world at seven hundred and twenty horsepower. Um, they, we're about to, about to deliver uh, two, one's going under a triple road train operating at 150 tonne and one's going under a, a B double operating at about 68 and a half tonne. Um, so you know this this fallacy of electric vehicles not being able to shift and tow the loads comfortably it, it's not it's not accurate the the performance of electric motors is is far superior to that of a diesel just through the through the um flat torque curve that is in an electric motor
7: so the next time your your diesel motor needs replacing think electric you reckon
12: uh, definitely uh, look I, I, i've been around the transport industry all my life my family's had a long association with, with trucking right throughout australia with fh and and other transport businesses that we've been involved in over the last 40 odd years as, um, as 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 a family, and um, you know, I I um, I've I focused solely on electrification now because I I can see the I can see the return in it for the fleet operator. I can see the benefit for the environment. Um, I can see the benefit for the communities of what we can do with with the electrification of assets. And 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 I also look at it from a part of our country. We we've got the ability to be energy secure and energy so have energy sovereignty. Um, just through our access to the renewable energy that we do have here in Australia, we have an abundance of renewable energy that we can utilise better. And by electrifying our transport fleets and and our agriculture and our mining, um, we we then start to alleviate our needs to import so much uh, so much uh, diesel and and petroleum products from uh, from offshore, that you know we import ninety five percent of all our fuel is imported into this country there's only ever around 7 to 12 days of fuel in stock in the country anyone that says there's any more hasn't done the numbers the reality of it is is that you know we we always are constantly having diesel shortages and diesel allocations because of shipping and there's a lack of terminal storage in the country to hold the amount of diesel that we require to keep operating so you know that is a risk for our, our our economy and it's also a massive burden on our economy on on what we are importing into the country um, in fuel stocks.
0: Lex Forsyth from Janus Electric speaking with David Clawton, turning trucks electric. I wonder whether you'd give it a go. It's 21 past one. Here's Casey Musgraves, merry-go-round. Casey Musgraves, merry-go-round. It's 25 past one. G'day, my name's Amy Kirk. I study sharks and I bloody love them. And you're listening to The Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Hope you're going well. Hey, would you eat an ice cream made from avocado? A Western Australian avocado farmer plans to make just that, Thea Walker. She's hoping to start an avocado ice cream business value-adding fruit that would otherwise go to waste. She's one of seven 2023 AgriFuture's Rural Women's Acceleration Grant recipients for her business idea, and she says it would be a great way to reduce, reduce waste and also benefit her farm. I've just been exploring different ways
2: to utilise waste avocados pretty much from my own farm production and yeah sort of developed the idea of creating an ice cream with these avocados that are all ripening at the same time and I thought well hang on I'm using avocados using a few other produce that's grown on my farm such as passion fruit or hazelnuts and I'm like hey there's actually there actually could be something with this so I thought well why not look into starting it as a business maybe commercialize it maybe collaborate with some other farmers and see where it goes from there. And where did you get this idea? I was literally just Googling what can do with avocados and this an ice cream, but very basic ice cream recipe came up for avocados, dairy free. And I thought, well, you know, I made it and it works. So I thought, well, let's roll with that. It's a good way to use up lots of avocados and yeah, it tastes good at the end of the day. So that's the main thing. How does this benefit your farm? It gives us an alternative market to use our waste avocados before these avocados were either just getting sent to landfill or just going, you know, over to make guacamole over east or somewhere like that. So we didn't really know what happened to them beyond us picking them. And a lot of these avocados, you know, there's nothing actually wrong with the inside of them. They just have a blemish on the skin. Or something like that so they're still perfectly good avocados and we are just getting lower prices for them for that reason so yeah so it means we can create a product here using those avocados keep it local keep the money within the community in a way and within our farm and yeah that's pretty much it do you see a strong uptake for the avo ice cream i think so definitely with today's consumers they're very environmentally aware and looking for sustainable alternatives for food and also healthy foods so this product will be dairy free and using local ingredients so at least the consumer can start to learn about where their foods come from and pretty much learn that you know this is a, a waste product but actually it can create a good product at the end of the day that it tastes no different to something that does make it onto the supermarket shelf. How far are you along in developing your business? Not very far at all. It's mainly just an idea at this stage. But using this grant, I'm going to hopefully be able to learn a lot more about being a whole business and do a lot of networking with other people, with other farmers, with other people in the food industry. I have a degree in agribusiness, but not much actual knowledge in the food industry. So hopefully I'll be able to learn a lot more about that and get some ideas and start rolling with that. What does the grant that you have received involve? So it's pretty much just a $7,000 bursary for me to be able to look into doing courses, training, mentoring, things like that. So it's for leadership and professional development. Yeah, so pretty much just expanding my knowledge in business leadership, how to run a business, how to set it up and hopefully work towards turning my idea into a reality at the end of the 12 months. What does it mean to you to have received this grant? Yeah, it actually means a lot. It means that I know that there's people out there that recognise this as something that would have value to communities and everyone pretty much. It also confirms that to me that this is an idea that has potential commercial value and could be something good. And it means that, you know, I think, okay, I can actually start doing this now. It's a step forward in the future, if you know what I mean.
0: That's Thea Walker. She's an avocado farmer from Manjumarp. It's a small farming town in the southwest of Western Australia. She was speaking with uh, Sophie Johnson about her idea for avocado ice cream. So, Thea Walker is one of seven recipients of the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Acceleration Grants for her business idea, Avocado Ice Cream, helping to reduce waste, find a market for those leftover avocados that won't make it to the supermarkets and also make some delicious ice cream. Sounds pretty interesting to me. That's it for the Country Hour today. I'll be back with you tomorrow from half past one. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon.